Every draft needs a little speculation, and we've got just the guy. I'll talk with Baseball HQ speculator columnist Ryan Bloomfield next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 25th. It's show number two of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday HQ Tout edition for you. We'll have our HQ spotlight on Ryan Bloomfield, speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com, discussing his recent labor draft and its middle round strategy, pitch mix changes, risky hitters and pitchers in the early rounds, and a whole lot more. It's another big Friday HQ Tout edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Ryan Bloomfield is in the house. We gotta speculate about some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday HQ Tout Edition, it's our HQ Spotlight, where we talk baseball with one of the staff analysts and writers at Baseball HQ. Ryan, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, PD. Glad to have the pod back and your your dulcet tones back in my podcast feed with your uh, with the initial debut show earlier this week with Ray and, and Todd Zola. So yeah, glad to be fun. a part of it. Yeah, I've heard people comment on my dull tones, but dulcet is a... Sounds better, so I'm going to go with that. Uh, how much drafting have you been doing so far? Uh, I've been drafting, been drafting throughout the off season. Just something to keep me busy. Shortly after, I kind of take a break after we go through the whole baseball forecaster process and get that out in November. Take kind of December off, but once January hit, started doing some of the uh, started doing some of the 50 team draft and holds, and then just this week did a labor mixed draft, which will. I assume we'll talk about a little bit later on where labor mix was Tuesday night and was the first kind of, I don't want to say live draft, but the first quick clock draft where I'm not on the clock for two or four hours in the draft and holds it's a one minute clock. So I uh, got that, that definitely got the juices flowing for, for draft season. And I noticed that you had a, a live stream of it, which has been archived and it's available. And uh, it was a lot of fun to, to follow along the draft uh, because of the r- relatively quick turnover a lot of uh, one it was a one minute um, requirement that you mentioned but a lot of guys were picking faster than that yep yep did did the live stream it was a lot of fun I <laughs> tried to make things as hard on myself as possible by trying to talk through the entire live stream while I'm drafting and then actually my internet went out during the stream as well so my like sixth and seventh picks I think were both made from my phone uh using cell server so you know try and try and make it as difficult for myself as possible but but no the live stream was a lot of fun we probably had i probably had at any time kind of between 30 and 50 people in there commenting and interacting with them i had the fifth pick so i had enough time in a 15 team league i had enough time in kind of those odd rounds after i picked to um 
to interact and just get people's comments. And, and it was a blast. It was a really good time. You mentioned doing a lot of uh, the draft champions type drafting and pretty much everything so far, except for labor, I'm going to assume was uh, NFBC style, if not actually on the NFBC platform. And they use Kentucky Derby slot picking where you get to try to pick the slot that you want to draft from. Did you have a favorite position? And, uh, and if so, what was it? Yeah, so Kentucky Derby, for those that aren't uh, familiar, is, yeah, you kind of get to pick, not pick your draft slot, but pick your preferences for draft slot, um, as opposed to just getting assigned one out of the out of the blue. I, I typically this year, I like the first like six or seven uh, picks. I think there's kind of a drop off after that. So you've got your Trey Turners, Ramirez. I took Bo Bichette, uh fifth overall in labor the other night. Uh, Garrett Cole is also typically going in that in that realm so a little bit of a drop off after that so typically with uh kentucky derby i'm looking at maybe the first handful of picks and then if not kind of going back towards the end part of the draft because just in that those even rounds and snake drafts you, you get those earlier second and fourth round picks and especially in the player pool this year just kind of where the adps are shaking out on the nfbc i'm liking kind of get going early in the second and fourth rounds. So um, it's, it's definitely a calculus. I generally look at like the first four rounds, not just the first round uh, when trying to choose my slot draft slot, look at the first four, see just kind of generally uh, where the targets of mine are, are going on ADP and, and, and pick from there. I went t- towards the middle in, uh, in the Razslam 12 team, uh, drafts. Uh, I I tried to get number six and I, I got number six, but I was like uh, six, eight, seven, nine, something like that in that order, because I thought for such a short draft, I didn't, I wanted to be not waiting a long time while, while the, the draft made its way up and down through the turns. And if I'm in the middle, I'm never more than, you know, 14 or 15 picks away instead of 30. And I didn't want to get caught by runs and that kind of stuff. And so far it seems to be working okay, but how many rounds have we got through? You're in my league in Raz Slam and I think what five, six rounds we're into now, seven, maybe. Yeah, we just, started the the eighth despite me holding up the clock in in several rounds that's been kind of running joke in our chat room uh but yeah in the same league i've got the 10th pick you've got the sixth and then fellow hq or brant chesser is right next to me at 11 and he's had a lot of success in the format so it's a tough room uh my team looks a little bit different than brant's and that's probably not a good thing because i want to kind of copycat him but it's been a lot of fun so far yeah eighth round and uh definitely a totally different pivot from draft and hold labor mixed league which is five by five roto categories and kind of throwing that out the window with Razzlam, which is uh best ball points format where you don't really need to worry about categories it's all about points and positions and drop-offs uh, within each position so um nice to mix it up nice to mix it up this is my first non uh roto draft of the season so it's been it's been a blast it is an interesting way to play for anybody i've throughout my fantasy playing lifetime have always been in rotisserie style drafts and you get really used to how that works. And then it's, it's a nice little curveball to throw yourself to go in and say, it, it doesn't matter where the points come from as long as you get the points. So I think stolen bases are worth five and home runs are worth eight or something like that. And home runs of course also count as RBIs and runs and all those kind of things. I think a solo home runs actually worth 13 points in the format, which is by far the biggest scoring event that you can have. Although a starting pitcher, I think can amass like a 20 point night, but it's usually only once a week. So it really does make you think about how the 
talent is spread out a little differently, how the production is spread out a little differently, and so forth. Now, you said you've been drafting quite a bit. Have you noticed anything different about this year's drafts versus last year's and the year before? Biggest thing, and you guys hit on this, so I won't go too far into detail on, on this one, but yeah, the closer market. I think it's more, you know, your top end closers who have the skill and have the role are going earlier than than we've ever seen. I, for example, took Josh Hader in the third round of my labor mix draft on Tuesday, and I thought I would never do that um, as recently as two years ago. Um, so part of that is there's only a, you know, maybe 10, 10 guys that have skills and roles. So that, that kind of pocket of closers is, is, is a rare breed. And then also with the lockout, we just don't know who the closers are going to be on the other 20 teams right now. And we won't until, uh, until the league is back open for business. And so it just makes for a lot of uncertainty in closers and, and, and the closers that do have some relative certainty and I know it's a volatile position. Those guys are really getting pushed up in drafts. One other thing I'm seeing, and this is kind of the, the ethos of my labor strategy, was I'm really liking kind of the more middle round starting pitchers. And I wrote about this a little bit on this uh, on BaseballHQ.com in my speculator column, just how bad last year was for the early starting pitchers. And I know one year does not make a trend, but that kind of has filtered into 2022's ADPs. There's just a lot of question marks, in my opinion, on a lot of the top aces. So generally what at least I'm pivoting on that and, and doing in my drafts is waiting a little bit on the, the early starting pitchers and, and waiting until in labor, I waited till the sixth round to take my first starter. And that's, again, something that uh, that I have not done in the past. I've typically taken a, a starter in the first or second round in the past few years. So uh, those are probably the two big things that I've noticed so far in the early drafts. and. Fully aware that that could all completely get flipped on its head once the league's back in business and, and free agency resumes again. So it's it's going to be interesting. There's kind of two different draft seasons this season. So uh, yeah, that, that's right. Draft season yeah. two comes up quick. I agree. And, and uh, I was looking at the pitching starting pitching market before the season started as well, and I had much the same reaction as you. It wasn't so much, I don't think, because I was worried that the Garrett Coles were going to collapse or Bieber's going to collapse or the guys who collapsed last year, I didn't expect to collapse either. We know we know that that's going to happen, but it's not particular to pitchers, I don't think. Uh, Ron Chandler has done studies that say basically kind of a third of all the guys we pick in that first and second round are going to flop. It's just the way things are, and I don't think it's particular, as I said, to pitchers or hitters. But I, I started looking in the middle rounds, as you did, and I thought, you know, there's, by ADP anyway, there's an awful lot of guys in this that I wouldn't mind having. And I thought that maybe if the if the benefit of not grabbing Garrett Cole or not gap, grabbing uh, one of those other top pitchers, Max Scherzer, guys like that, was that I would get a better hitter, then I just do still, and maybe I'm just an old fogey on this, I trust hitters more than I trust pitchers as a general observation. I know anything can happen, but that's the way I approached it. And I think you're right. I think that there's uh, there's gold in them in our hills in the middle rounds. And the other thing too, and and this is more kind of narrative. I don't have the hard data. I probably could or should look back to 2020 when we had that, you know, summer camp and really quick ramp up. We're going to have that again this season. We're going to have a, you know, hopefully when the lockout ends and um, and and the season begins, we're not going to have the typical longer spring training time. We're going to have those quicker ramp ups. 
And again, just my kind of general thought on that is that might hurt pitchers more than it would hitters uh, to make sure they have enough time, especially early in the season, to be stretched out. So that's another kind of consideration um, on this wacky 2022 draft season. I also wondered, and this is something that I, I remember thinking about while I was talking to Ray and Todd earlier in the week, but I, I didn't mention it then, and I'll, so I'll ask you, do you think that there's any likelihood that the minor leaguers who are going to get a spring training get maybe a little bit of a, of a head start on the major leaguers and maybe a bit better of an opportunity for the minor leaguers at the top of the table to sneak onto a roster in a situation where ordinarily they wouldn't because everybody was on a, on an even playing field insofar as prep time is concerned. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And I think Ray made the point that like, at least until the major leaguers come back, these managers and, and the front offices are only going to have their eyes on the minor leaguers. And if someone, I think Ray mentioned Bobby Witt as the example If Bobby Witt is just tearing it up uh, compared to other minor leaguers. That's going to make an impression. So um, at least for playing time, there might be a little bit more of an inclination and, and the CBA, whenever that's agreed upon, will dictate this as well, but maybe more of an inclination to bring up those minor leaguers. And there's just a little more, and it feels weird to say this, a little bit more certainty with minor leaguers relatively, because we actually will get reports on those types of players from beat writers and, and get manager feedback. Whereas the major leaguers, it's been a very slow drip of information on who is rehabbing, how, how much are, are certain players rehabbing from home. Um, we get kind of grainy Instagram stories and Instagram videos of certain rehab sessions, and that's kind of all we have to go on for the major leaguers that are locked out. But uh, And I kind of put this out on, on Twitter the other day. Like, There's probably a decent chunk of guys who we're drafting right now who have just been kind of sitting on the couch or maybe are hurt and, you know, can't meet with the team doctors to have an official diagnosis of the injury. So we don't, we don't know about that. Um, it's just uh, a lot of uncertainty with, with the major leaguers and with the lack of information we've got right now. And at least we'll have that um, a little bit on the minor league side um, until the, uh, until the MLBers come back. I don't know that I'm as worried about undiagnosed injuries or untreated injuries because I, I suspect that most ball players, given the amount of money that's involved, will probably pay for their own doctors. While they're uh, not, well, the team doctors aren't available, they can still get medical treatment. I'm not worried about that. What I'm worried about is, as you said, more is I don't know who's hurt, whether they're getting treatment or not. You know, and right now, as I said, you and I are in a draft and I'm drafting guys that might be hurt, a guy like Max Muncy. I mean, I look at Max Muncy, he's pretty favorably placed right now in our draft. He's still available. We're in the eighth round. I don't think he would have lasted this long if everybody had been super confident that he was 100%. But we don't know. We don't know how hurt he is. We know he was hurt, but is he still hurt? I don't know. And then there's guys that, you know, may have hurt themselves, uh, you know, tripping on a Christmas tree at some point during the year in their own home. And we don't even know anything about that. So it is a very um, sort of flying blind environment that we're in. And I think, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think this is one of those years where we always talk about try to avoid risk at the top of your draft because, uh, I don't want to take as I do want to take as few chances as I can on guys with injury histories because this year especially I don't know what their status is coming into camp. I'm going to try to get a guy who's you know generally 
playing 150 games a year the last few years so I can have that little bit of confidence over a guy who's, you know, hit or miss, uh, has missed 20, 40, 60 games in a season over the past three years. Yep, absolutely. And and like you said, it's just but it's just hard to know, hard to know what they've been up to lately. And and I'm, I kind of made the comment about two draft seasons um, earlier, uh, just a few minutes ago. And I, I, I really think that's going to be the case, not in t- not only in terms of player movement, but also in, you know, once everyone checks back into camp, gets those kind of, you know, reentry physicals, uh, there's just going to be we're going to be drinking from from the fire hydrant and that, you know, the ADPs that we have been looking at have essentially been frozen for months now. And it's going to be an adjustment period to see a lot of that turned on its head with the, uh, the bevy of news that's coming up. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ryan Bloomfield from BaseballHQ.com. The Speculator columns there has some uh, editorial responsibilities with the publications. A very busy guy, Ryan, and two little kids to boot. I don't know how you do it. Uh, you mentioned earlier this week uh, another draft that you're in simultaneously with the Raslam draft that we're in, and that was the Labor Experts draft, 15-team mixed uh, snake draft. Uh, what was your strategy going into that one? Yep. So general strategy, and this will be out. I'll have a um, I'll have a written co- column out on Friday. So actually, the day the pod comes out, uh, kind of detailing this a little bit. But generally, my my big thing this off season is a lot of you know. There's way too much attention paid on the early rounds, I, and I almost think there's a lot of not too much attention on the late rounds, the sleepers, that sort of thing. I, I think the middle rounds kind of get overlooked like that round, maybe six to 15 or something in a 15 team league, uh, maybe picks a hundred to two fifty kind of a deal. Those are players that either they're like total rebound candidates from, from, you know, like a Christian Yelich or, or Cody Bellinger guys who have been there before and can post first round value. You're, um, those are the guys that in these middle rounds that really can make or break your draft because they do have, unlike kind of the, the dart throws and the, and the, and the speculate speculation guys late in the drafts, these middle round guys do have talent. They do have the ability to kind of push up and, and, and return first or second round value if you hit on the right guys. So basically my plan was to work in the middle rounds, identify the targets that I have in the middle rounds. And at the end, just kind of take a high level look at, okay, I've identified my middle round targets. How many of those guys are pitchers or starting pitchers? How many of those guys are stolen base sources? How many of those guys are closers? And the, the short answer to that is I identified, again, just my own personal targets. I identified a ton of starting pitchers that I like in those middle rounds. I identified almost zero closers that I like in those middle rounds. And I identified maybe two or three stolen base guys that won't hurt me elsewhere in those middle rounds. And so that, you know, having that information dictates my early round draft strategy. So I want to, I want to take guys who steal bases, but also produce in the other four categories. I want to kind of quote unquote lock up steals again, super volatile position, but I want to get somebody with the skills in the role in the early rounds. And then when we get to the middle rounds, work on those targets, pound starting pitching. And that was the, uh, that was the plan going into labor. So Batson uh, saves early mid round pitching a little later on in the draft. And as we mentioned earlier, there is quite a bit of pitching to look at as long as we can, uh, as long as we can be 
a little bit comfortable that we're getting the kinds of guys that we want that have skills and all of those kinds of things. You know what this makes me think of is uh, you and I are also both in Tout Wars American League later on, and the most successful team in that league, uh, uh, Rick and uh, and uh, Glenn, Glenn, yep, they have a philosophy that says that they stay in that nobody over $30 range, nobody under five kind of thing. And in, in an auction format, of course, you can do that in a way you can't in a snake draft because you have to draft your first round guy. I mean, you're not going to pass just so you can have more fun getting guys out of the middle. But in a, in a uh, auction situation, it seems like your strategy as you've defined it might mean going with that, uh, Colton and the Wolfman kind of strategy where you don't go with anybody expensive, but you also don't accept anybody cheap. Yeah. I mean, the equivalent of that in an auction is maybe looking at the 10 to $15 starting pitchers. How many, how many of those guys are, are quote unquote targets for me um, and, and doing it that way. But yes, it's, it's a little bit of a different animal. Yeah. Like I can't trade my first round pick for, two third round picks in labor. Uh, it would be kind of fun actually to be able to do that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that calculus, especially in like, and I know um, with, with AL, AL tout replacement level, such a big deal in those AL only leagues, uh, really any only league that uh, it's hard to kind of speculate on those one or $2 guys, just because if they don't pan out, you've got nothing on the, uh, on the fab pool to replace them with. So a um, little bit of a different animal, but it's the same general concept of going through that player pool, finding w- the targets that you like. Um, and then in an auction, that's going to dictate, you know, do you want to spend over $30 on a guy? Are there any kind of $5 guys that, that you like later in the, uh, later in the auction? I think it would be the same in a, like a 15 mixed auction, even, you know, that where there is a lot more fungibility at the back of the draft and you can be a little more adventuresome because the, free agent pool is a lot bigger than it is in, in a single league format. The other big difference, I think, between these very big NFBC drafts where there's a very little opportunity for movement, there's no trading especially, and I know you talked about that on your live stream when you were doing labor where there is trading, so that allows you to build surpluses on purpose for trading later or not worry about surpluses so much. But in the NFBC format, balance is everything because you're competing in the overall race as well as in the individual league race. And I've thought about that in the past. I wonder if you, I've always wondered if you could make money just trying to win your league with some kind of extreme strategy because everybody else is uh, thinking that they're going to win the overall and they they go with balance and you you know crush four categories and and leave out one. I I wonder if you could make money at it. You wouldn't win the overall, but you might win your league. I I don't know about that. But in the live stream, Ryan, you mentioned the industry chatter about possibly punting or reducing the focus on saves and stolen bases in the uh, single league format like labor where you're not competing in any kind of overall race. What were you hearing about that and what have you seen about that in those kinds of leagues where it seems like it might be an increasingly viable strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Especially in those scarce categories or the scarce categories that we think are scarce right now in, in, in steals and stolen bases. Like I thought about with the fifth pick going with like a Juan Soto or Vlad Jr. And then following that up with like a Jordan Alvarez, uh, Matt Olson, Pete Alonso, and just totally punting steals because not only is, and I think the majority of our listeners are probably in these same home leagues, standalone leagues where you're not competing for some overall where you can trade out of a surplus and 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 shore up other areas it just leaves so much more flexibility 
in in your draft options that not only for your team but it also kind of <laughs> it kind of makes a mess of the rest of the draft if you've got if you have three other people in the league thinking the same thing you are i'm gonna punt steals i'm gonna punt saves those steals guys are getting way pushed down in the draft and are quote unquote values for other teams and so it it really does it does take those kind of ADPs that, that I look at all all winter from the NFBC and, and kind of turns them upside down because there's it, it's just it's such a different even though it's the same categories, even though it's the same number of teams in this case, uh, the league settings and being able to trade and just worry about a standalone punting one of those two categories is absolutely a viable strategy it's a viable strategy with an overall competition um patrick to what kind of what you were saying we're like yeah right now everyone thinks they can win the overall and really in reality there's 600 people and only one's gonna win it um so people are not going to go with alternative draft builds and, and punt categories if you're the only one doing it it makes it that much easier now a good chunk of and especially in the nfbc and, and these kind of high stakes leagues a good chunk of your money your entry fee is going towards that overall uh, fee. But in most of these leagues in a 15 team league, all you need to do is finish third and you get your money back. Uh, if you finish second, you get, you make a profit and you can tell your significant other that you didn't waste so much money on fantasy baseball, which is another positive side effect of such a strategy. <laughs> That's one of the benefits. All right. Uh, you said in the uh, run up to the start of the labor draft on your live feed that you did think about punting as a strategy and ultimately decided against it. Uh, why? Decided against it just because if, if you do punt, you absolutely have, you kind of, you do pin yourself a little bit. Like you have to be pretty much getting 14 out of 15 points in the other four hitting categories. And the other thing with labor is we're drafting so early in draft season. A lot of these guys, and we kind of just talked about this, by the time opening day comes, a lot of these guys, maybe not a lot, but some of these guys are going to be injured and are going to start the season on your IL. I, w I do want to be as balanced in an early draft like this, as balanced as possible, so that I can kind of roll with the punches, for lack of a better term. And and if if my... Um, one of my early guys, stolen base guys goes down. I still have at least a puncher's chance in that category. Um, if, if you punt saves and your top, your top hitter goes down before the season even starts, it's that much harder to, to nail the other four categories. So balance mostly because labor is so early in draft season was, was ultimately the way that I wanted to go with this. Um, uh, just because with that influx of news that's coming up, uh, when we reopen and the league's back open, um, I want to be able to be as balanced as possible and pivot where some of my guys go down. Do you think there's a difference in a balanced strategy between balancing by taking extremely um, productive guys in some categories and balancing them with extremely productive guys in other categories like Malik Smith plus Pete Alonzo equals two guys? Or would you rather have a whole bunch of you know, Mookie Betts type guys who produce across the categories. Would much rather have the Mookie Betts types who are who are kind of chipping away across categories. Right, Adalberto Mondesi is the the prime example. I know he's kind of a polarizing player in um, in fantasy circles, but like, yes, if you draft an Adalberto Mondesi and you you pencil in with very light pencil sixty stolen bases uh, because that's what his projection is, you're building your team around that. And if that you've basically got a single point of failure, if Alberto Mondesi gets hurt, your entire 
stolen base structure is gone. On the flip side, if Adalberto Montesi stays healthy all year and, and steals 80 bases, and you also have a few other steals guys that chip in 10 or 20, and you don't trade out of it, you have maybe by the end of the year 140 steals and you win the category when second place has like 100 steals. And that, that, that excess 40 steals, while valuable in a projection, have zero value in your league. So uh, for that reason, I like to stay as balanced as possible and stay away from more of those uh, one category guys, just because, like I said, if it, if it fails, your team has been built around that and you're kind of screwed. But also if it hits, you have, you have the potential to have a lot of excess value um, or an, a lot of excess statistics in your stolen base category that ultimately in the standings doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter. You still get 15 points if you win steals by one steal versus 40. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's standings gain points, but, but that's how, uh, how that kind of works. We mentioned that you took Bo Bichette at pick number five, and you took Tim Anderson with your second pick, which I thought was a little unusual going shortstop, shortstop to open, because uh, we knew that there's lots of shortstops in this year's pool. Shortstop looks very deep. What was your thinking with taking shortstops back to back to open your draft, given the uh, the pretty solid supply of shortstops? Yeah, was 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 thinking to just grab the best player available. And I've got Tim Anderson actually ranked as pretty much an end of first round, early second round guy. And the floor with Tim Anderson is fantastic as well. So I did make the decision to go with two shortstops, knowing that shortstop is so deep, I'm probably going to not regret the decision, but I'm going to have to pass on shortstops that I like later. And that happened. And in the live stream, I commented on Ahmed Rosario uh, frequently. That's someone who I wanted to grab as a stolen base guy in the middle rounds, but could not because I, I started with Bichette and Tim Anderson. And if I take Ahmed Rosario later, he's going right into my utility spot. And then uh, even further, I took I ended up taking Nelson Cruz as well, who's UT only. So if I took Rosario, um, I could not even start him. So that's the, um, you know, that's the, that's the downside of taking two shortstops that early. Ultimately it didn't, I don't think it hamstrung me too much. It, it did come into play a couple of times. Um, I do remember a few years back in, I might've been labor, but Mike Gianella and Brett Sayer were on the, the end of the first round 15, 16 turn and took two shortstops. And part of that strategy, I believe not to put words in their mouth was to kind of corner the shortstop market at that time. That was not my strategy here either. Just because shortstop is so deep, it, it, taking Bichette and Anderson kind of barely put a dent in the overall pool. So it was more just take the take the two guys I like, take the best uh, the best players available early in the rounds, and 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 work around it later. I thought that was kind of what was going through your mind, and of course, the uh, format of the league is we get to draft forty two guys, and the system picks which guys do best. Uh, we get the 14 best hitters in a week, provided they meet uh, position requirements. So it's not quite the same as drafting uh, uh, as drafting a, uh, a single league rotisserie style, which you were doing. It's a, it's a little different. It's a little unorthodox. But, of course, it can still work because they're good players. And that's, that's really the thing. And Anderson gives you a tremendous batting average floor. I don't think he's ever hit under 300, despite some skills that make you wonder how he manages it. But he's he's a really good batting average hitter. Hits the ball hard, lot of line drives, that kind of thing. So between Bichette and Anderson, you've got a 
310-ish sort of BA floor, that gives you a little bit of flexibility down the line when you maybe are looking at a Mike Zunino for a catcher rather than trying to scratch around and trying to find a catcher who'll hit 240, but you'll miss out on 15 or 16 home runs in the process. Yep, absolutely. And just being able to being able to be pretty pretty good across all five categories is that's how I want to leave those early rounds. And so, regardless of position, that's that's the way I went, and I I don't think it killed me too much later in the draft. You openly mused on the live feed about going closer closer after you started shortstop shortstop, which would have been really fun. I I think it would have been really interesting and got a lot of people talking. There was thirty or forty people following along and typing comments in while you were talking about whether to do this. And of course, they're all going, "Do it, do it," because it's not their team. And if it if it fails miserably, then they can all go, "What an idiot!" You know, even though they were the ones yelling about it. But you you had uh, the two shortstops plus Josh Hader. You just decided instead of going for the other closer, I think you were looking at Razel Iglesias and uh, guys like that. You went with Paul Goldschmidt instead. What was your thinking and why did you get cold feet? It was kind of funny having, you know, multiple people say, yeah, do it. It's kind of like, you know, you're at the bar, it's the end of the night and people are telling, yeah, have that last, uh, you know, whatever, but they don't have to deal with the repercussions following morning. (laughs) That's right. It's not their hangover. uh, (laughs) Exactly. And so that would have been probably my fantasy baseball hangover in that case. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It just seemed a little bit too, too risky or not too risky, but too, I kind of pinning myself in and, and categories like a save where we're in saves where I've got two in the first four rounds. It was just too much. Um, I wanted to, you know, the, the flip side, one of the categories we haven't talked about so far is, you know, power. And if I do that, I, you know, yes, you can get power later in drafts, but if I start, two shortstops with uh with with speed and then two closers suddenly i'm really far behind in power and even though you can make up for it later you also the flip side to that comment is you need more than ever to to get there as well so um just wanted to stay balanced i I did end up taking kenley jansen as a second closer which was not in my plan later on in the eighth round but in the early rounds i wanted to uh to kind of keep keep going at my strategy of taking bats early and, and went with Goldschmidt with the floor and then in the fifth round back around with uh with George Springer. So despite the peer pressure and potential ability, a lot a lot of times in the industry we like to name our kind of early early team builds off of poker hands like pocket aces. I could have I could have been known or coined some kind of new term full house or something if I took a third shortstop in the fifth round. Um, I decided to not give in to the uh, to the peer pressure and, and stay balanced. Yeah, and it starts to look sometimes uh, people in these experts leagues and sometimes with justification get accused of building their teams on gimmicky sort of lines mm-hmm. just so they have something to write about in their website because they're they're other than the celebrity or or cachet that comes with doing well in one of these leagues there's no money at stake it's not like uh, if you if you finish ninth or 11th or whatever it's not like you're going to miss a mortgage payment so i think there is a undercurrent of that going on in experts leagues a lot of the times where people do some fairly strange stuff and you realize later that they only did it so they had something to talk about for the next couple of weeks on uh, on the radio or in their podcast or online that kind of thing so when all the dust was settled you, you ran your strategy pretty much as you wanted to with those middle pitching guys uh, how did you like your team um I like. I, I mean, I, it's it's easy to say. I, I love the team. Um, a couple things that so the the middle round strategy pitcher strategy did really work well. 
uh, for me. So in that sixth round, I basically had the choice of Trevor Rogers, who I did take, but I also could have taken Frankie Montes, Logan Webb, Dylan Cease. Um, I, on the seventh round, went back and pivoted and took starters again. I took Charlie Morton. Um, I just like a lot of those guys. Lance Lynn went later in the seventh round. Blake Snell, who I really like, um, ended up taking Nate Ivaldi in the ninth round. Like it, it just that 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 process of looking through the middle rounds and targeting those starting pitchers really did come to fruition. And I, I like how the staff um, turned out. Two things that I did not like with this team, and in a fifteen-team league and any only league. You, you have to go into the draft knowing that your team's going to have holes. Like you, you, you don't just kill a 15 team draft and have no weaknesses. For me, it's third base. I waited. I did not take a third baseman until the 21st round. I took Evan Longoria and then followed that up with Alec Bohm in the 22nd. I don't like how that played out. I also don't like I waited on catcher and that wasn't totally the plan. My plan going in was to take an earlier catcher who's going to play every day and get me either average or power and stream my second catcher kind of throughout the season in fab. I did not do that. I took Austin Nolan in the 19th round and then Danny Jansen in the 27th. So I might not have much production at all at catcher or at third base, which is uh, a potential issue. But uh, like I said, every team's going to have holes. Um, in general, liked how the mid-round strategy turned out. And hopefully, you know, when, when my article comes out on HQ, that that readers and, and kind of the casual players in your home leagues can kind of use that process to map out your early rounds and uh, find that helpful. Uh, I, I felt that part really, uh, really worked out well for me in this draft. I was wondering when you said you were thinking of going in this direction, whether you would feel a little bit constrained to force yourself in those middle rounds, maybe to look at pitchers that you ordinarily wouldn't, you know, you have to bend your own uh, rules or bend your own expectations, but it doesn't seem like you did. It seems like your plan was to get those Charlie Morton type of guys and you got Charlie Morton type of guys. And that's the, and yeah, and I'm glad you say that because it is, it's not Charlie Morton. It's Charlie Morton type of guys. Like you cannot build your draft strategy around one, getting one pitcher in a certain round. Um, it has to be kind of a group. And so when I mentioned that kind of group of starters in the sixth or seventh round, it's not, it's not foolproof, but there's a pretty good chance like one of those guys or two of those guys are going to be available to me in the sixth or the seventh. Um, so it is very risky to kind of do your, uh, your entire strategy around one one person. Um, so that is kind of one word of warning is make sure you have at least a backup or a, a tertiary option if you're going to uh, build around that assumption. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ryan Bloomfield from BaseballHQ.com. And Ryan, uh, you mentioned that you had a note on Twitter that you put out and your Twitter feed's a lot of fun. It's really interesting to uh, read your stuff and you a few years ago, started creating these bloom boards, you call them. They're kind of graphic or, or um, graphical sort of little nuggets that you put in there with uh, table information, information laid out as a table rather than in, in 280 characters. And they're really quite provocative a lot of the times. You, you had one not that long ago, I think, where you listed seven pitchers in 2021 who had three or more pitches that all had swinging strike rates above 16%. How did you choose 16%? Why is it important? And who are the guys? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and yeah, if anyone wants to follow me on Twitter, it's at RyanBHQ. I put out these bloom boards, especially during draft season, uh, probably like three times a week. I'll, I'll put something up there. But essentially, it's, a, yeah, like you said, a list of filters and of, of things that I think are important. Um, 
that that basically spits out a list of players to take a, a deeper look at. So yeah, for the, in this case, um, I wanted to look at pitchers who have a wide array of of pitches that miss miss bats. And so what I'm trying to go for these uh, in these boards is kind of like at the top half, I want to see guys who I would expect. And so I identified seven starters with that 16% swing strike rate. At the top, it's Corbin Burns, who actually has four, which is crazy, um, and Walker Bueller. So it's kind of like, okay, that's that's validation. Those guys are going early. Um, they're successful. The big thing is who has those same kind of attributes that are going 100 picks later, at least 100 picks later. And those are the guys I'm interested in. Nate Valdi shows up on the uh, Bloom board at 122 ADP. Zach Gallen shows up. Carlos Rodon shows up. Marcus Stroman shows up. Um, that's what I, that's, those are the types of names I'm going for here with the board is you know cheaper names going later in the draft that have similar attributes to the studs that you would expect. The last thing that I'll say is you know that since it is Twitter, Twitter often lacks context. And so what I also try and kind of prefer it preface this with is this is the start of a deeper dive into some of these guys so the names i just listed like i really like native aldi took him in labor really like zach gallon carlos rodon i'm not so sure he ended the season um with an injury his qualifying offer was not renewed by the chicago white Sox. like there's pretty substantial injury risk that this bloom board will not pick up on so don't take it as gospel but take it as a nice starting point to identify uh, some of the later targets and drafts that uh, that you want to do. And yeah, they're a lot of fun. I get a lot of engagement with them online and um, and people seem to eat them up. So I just keep doing it and I, I'll keep doing it until uh, I guess people start ignoring me. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Once people uh, get a look at them, I think they're going to be hooked because they do give you food for thought. As you said, it's not like it's meant to be uh, some kind of directive. You must target these seven guys. It's a, it's a list that you can look at and say, now that I'm aware of Carlos Rodon having this, I'm going to look at him and, oh no, I still don't like him, which is fair dues. I mean, that's exactly what the intent is. And I was, for instance, quite shocked when I saw on the list, Marcus Stroman, he has this reputation of being a very low strikeout guy and he is a very low strikeout guy. But then you think to yourself, having pitches that, that result in swing and miss is not just about strikeouts. It makes the pitcher more effective because it seems to represent his ability to keep batters off balance, to keep them guessing about what's going on with it, with this mix of uh, relatively ordinary fastball and a bunch of other kind of pr pretty good pitches. And it makes me think that Marcus Stroman is a guy I'm going to be interested in in this draft season. And I think if I'm not mistaken, that's kind of your intent. You're trying to spark my interest and the interest of readers into looking at guys they maybe wouldn't have looked at otherwise. They were going to look at, you know, Shane Bieber, of course, everybody knows Shane Bieber. But when you find a guy down the list who has seems to have those same kind of skills, you know what it reminds me of is Ron Chandler's BAB system, where yep, they group exactly. guys by skills and say, you know, you may not be able to get Juan Soto, but here's a, a guy 250 picks later. He's not Juan Soto, but he does have kind of that same blend of skills, and that's something you should be looking at. Yep, uh, this is very much rooted in the in the in the old Mayberry method for Baseball HQ subscribers that are familiar with that, and very much rooted in Ron's kind of latest version of that, which is Babs, and that is that general concept of ignoring the ignoring the surface results, targeting skills and attributes of players 
that have wildly different prices in the market. And yeah, that's a major building block to uh, the types of things that I put out there with the bloom boards for sure. You also put out a couple of bloom boards showing the 2021 outcomes for the hitters and pitchers in the top two rounds. Uh, what was the intent there and what were the results? Yeah, the intent was I was just writing my speculator column and doing some research on kind of last year's um, duds at the top of the starting pitcher pool. And I figured I just I'm doing the research anyway. I put that information in the in, in my column for HQ subscribers, along with a lot more. Um, but I'll at least throw you know that portion of it out on Twitter and, and make a, a board of it. I just found it very interesting that the early first rounders. So as I pull it up here. Um, out of the top 25 starting pitchers that were drafted um, in last year's NFBC main event, only only six of them broke even, which again, to kind of what you were saying, Patrick, context, like, yeah, these early guys, it is hard to break even. Um, so you kind of expect a little bit of a, of, of a small percentage there. So six out of 25, yeah, okay, not too bad. However, the big thing that I found with this is nearly twice as many. So 10 out of those 25 went completely belly up and finished outside the top 200. And so those kind of, I call them in my, in my article, landmines were littered all throughout the early starting pitching pool last season. Not to say it will be the case again this year, but I, it's just something I found interesting um, that 10 out of the first 25 went belly up on the hitter side. So I followed that up with the same kind of filters and the same study for hitters last season. Only three finished outside out of the top 25. Only three of them finished outside the top 200. And that was Mike Trout, Cody Bellinger, and Adalberto Mondesi. Christian Yelich was almost there. He finished 190. So you could probably say four. Um, the flip side of that is over half of those first 25 hitters, 13 out of 25, uh, more or less returned their ADP. So finished at the end of the season and, and basically the round that they were drafted in or better. Um, and so it just kind of puts some numbers around, at least last season, the relative stability between hitters and pitchers. Hitters were a much more uh, safer option in 2021, both in terms of returning value, but also avoiding those early round blowups, which can, uh, which can really set your team back. The danger in these kinds of things, Ryan, it seems to me is it the results are descriptive of what happened in 2021, and the danger, I think, is that we tend to assume they're going to be predictive for 2022, and I go back and I think about past years when the pitchers all did well and the hitters not so much, and then there was this big stampede to, let's all draft pitchers in the early rounds, because they figured it out, and then we all do that, and then it switches back. So how predictive do you think this kind of measuring is as far as trying to figure out, okay, most of the pitchers crashed and failed, or, or a lot of them crashed and failed. Therefore, that's an indicator that that's going to happen again, and we should avoid them in the, in the early rounds. It's a great point. It's a great counterpoint to, to that thing. And, and yeah, what you don't want to do is overreact to one year set of data. And it's, and it's actually, it's interesting. So on the site this week, uh, we unveiled our uh, Santana plan anchors, which uh, is written by Michael Waddell. I hope I don't um, mispronounce that last name, Michael, but, but he puts out every year his Santana plan anchors, which not to go too far into that, but he has looked at the last 30 years of data for starting pitchers um, and has found that the early starting pitchers return the most value. So the, the Santana plan anchors that he identifies every season return over the last few years, 80% of their value 
whereas um, the rest of the pool returns 52%. And that is a longer span uh, kind of analysis, which if you are, you know, if you take that counterpoint of not overreacting to last season, um, yes, over time, the early starting pitchers have um, historically returned more value. So it, it is a, it's a give and take, like how much, you know, has the game changed since then? Um, are we, you know, should we only look back at maybe the last five years? It's, there's not really a right answer. It's, it's just trying to kind of give the information and, and put it out there and, and let the, the reader decide. So it's a, it's a great counterpoint not to overreact, especially given the, uh, the historical success of early round starting pitchers. I think that's right. And at the same time, uh, I'm old fashioned in the sense that I've never really been comfortable spending a lot of auction dollars on starting pitchers or taking them at the top. I'm much more comfortable in the middle as you were this year in in your labor draft and in auction drafts. I think I'm going to, if I'm going to spend 30 plus dollars on a guy, it's almost certainly going to be a hitter. And and I think some of that too, and I don't know, maybe I'm speaking for you, but like the, the feeling that is the worst in fantasy sports is pulling up your phone, you're away for a little bit, you pull up your phone or, or log on and check the news and found, find, you know, UCL tear or, or you know, whatever uh, with a pitcher. And it's just that like reaction of, oh man, I'm getting zero from this starting pitcher, which is for a lot of starting pitchers, that is the case for hitters. It can happen as well. Like you have those kind of disastrous type of injuries where folks miss the entire season, but it's a lot more prevalent on the pitcher side. And um, yeah, that's a terrible feeling that you want to stay away from early in drafts. Mind you, I, I, I'm sure everybody who's listening can say to themselves, yeah, but I remember that year I drafted that hitter and he broke his leg for yep. four games in. Uh, it's more likely with pitching. I think that's just something that we all understand, but it's getting worse for hitters. It, basically, it's all a crapshoot, and as I mentioned earlier, I think the prudent way to, to approach it is if a guy has a pretty significant injury history, you might want to look somewhere else, even if you're surrendering some ceiling. And the example of that this year, I think, is obviously Fernando Tatis and, to a lesser extent, Ronald Acuna, because both of these guys are coming off quite serious injuries. Acuna's was a knee injury, which could affect his speed. I think those are guys on the whole that even if I'd had first pick this year, I wouldn't have taken Tatis, even though on my list, he was by far the most productive point scorer in this point format. And I probably would have gone with Trey Turner, maybe even Jose Ramirez. It didn't, it didn't work out that way. I picked sixth and I, and I just went about my business. So who knows, right? I mean, but that's what makes it a game. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just look, you can, I mean, Look at a year ago, Fernando Tatis originally injured his shoulder, I believe, in spring training and still missed time. However, it wasn't like a binary thing where he was either great or not. He missed a bunch of time with the shoulder and still returned, um, I believe, top five value. So, yes. Uh, even with the shoulder problem. So you could say, yeah, like Fernando Tatis had the problem last year and he was just fine. He hit 280. He's, he hit 42 home runs and stole 25 <laughs> stolen bases. Why are you passing him in the fifth, you know, fifth overall pick? Um, so yeah, it's not as cut and dry. Same thing. There's, there's some chatter going around with like Jacob deGrom where some folks say he's either going to be the best pitcher or he's going to, you know, be out for the season. Well, there is some wiggle room and we only have to go back one year to basically see that Jacob deGrom was like a top 35 overall player and he missed half the season. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a probabilistic game and, uh, it's not as cut and dry as, uh, 
as some might think. So yeah, like the Tatis and DeGrom examples of guys who are injury risks um, still, even last season, uh, were fantastic, even with uh, pitching through or playing through those ailments. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ryan Bloomfield from BaseballHQ.com. And Ryan, in addition to your many other duties with baseball and outside of it, you write the regular weekly speculator column at BaseballHQ.com. And for those who might need a refresher, what's the concept of the column? Yeah, the concept of this thing, and this is a, this is a Ray Murphy uh, a brainchild here of, of looking at ranges of outcomes and the edges of ranges of outcomes. Look, if everything breaks right, what's the 80th, 90th percentile outcome for a player? Or, and I've been talk, talking about the last couple of weeks, what's the flip side of that? What's the, if everything goes wrong, what's the 10th percentile outcome or 20th percentile outcome of a player? So it's taking, uh, you know, a little bit of a leap of faith. If this goes well or if this doesn't break well, what might happen? And it's a good, it's a good kind of check because, and I kind of hit on this earlier, but we get so used to projections and looking at a, I'll just pull a random one up of Freddie Freeman. Uh, maybe not the best example because he's one of the more consistent guys out there, but we have Freddie Fre- Freeman as a 33 home run player, seven stolen base, and he's going to hit 303. Well, what if a couple things break right and he actually hits 325? And what if some things go wrong and he hits 275? Like that projection is, is, a number, but we get so fixated on that one number that it's really just a range of outcomes. And what we're trying to do in the speculator is at least highlight to the reader um, that there are ranges of outcomes and, and you can draft based off of that. It's not just this, this projection is what's going to happen. Um, it's, it's not that simple. So it, it's easy to get tunnel vision and look at projections, look at that single number, look at that single dollar value on your sheet and not consider um, other things, if things break right or break wrong. A couple of weeks back, your column looked at buying into pitch mix changes, and I wondered from the title, what's the difference between a pitch mix change you can buy into and one you don't think you can? I think the best example is uh, if you if you if you change your pitch mix and it doesn't work out, maybe that pitch mix wasn't <laughs> wasn't meant to be. Not all pitch mix changes are are good. Um, and actually the, the top guy who switched his pitch mix last season out of any other pitcher was Chad cool of the Pittsburgh pirates and now free agent fittingly. Um, so it, it's more what I'm looking at in, in, in what I looked at in this article was not only the pitch, pitch mix change, but the skills after that pitch mix change was made the speculative theory right because that's it that's you know that's the name of the column the speculative theory is this this guy changed his pitch mix and is basically a different pitcher now whereas a projection might take a logan webb who was pretty bad his first year in the majors really good for like a half season last year your typical projection is going to take logan webb and regress him down to kind of some kind of mixture of those two seasons my kind of pivot to that in the speculator is i'm saying well there's going to be no regression because Logan Webb completely switched up his pitch mix. He had a 281 XERA after that happened. He had a 27% strikeout rate after that happened. He's a new guy. He's going to fight off regression and be just fine. And, and therefore could be a value because the rest of the market is looking at a projection that builds in that, uh, that regression. So that was kind of the main point of this is, is look at the guys who switched up their pitch mix and kind of write, uh, 
write the reasons why their success in 2021 can be sustainable heading into uh, 2022. Well, you mentioned that uh, Chad Kuehl was the guy, I think, uh, from the National League who had the biggest pitch mix change, but it didn't work out for him. And then uh, you mentioned Logan Webb. Who are a couple of other uh, National League and American League pitchers who had the big change and did benefit from it? Yep. Uh, So a couple of them. uh, Freddie Peralta was a big one. He was kind of a two-pitch pitcher going from the bullpen to the rotation. Uh, Bumped his slider usage up from 4% in 2020, which is basically nothing. He didn't throw it. And he he then threw the slider 26% of the time in 2021. That third pitch really allowed Peralta to transition from the from the bullpen to the rotation. And it was a really good pitch. That slider was a 21% swinging strike rate. Trevor Rogers is another one who, again, I took in labor mixed. I'm buying into the pitch mix change of him throwing more change-ups. Went from 18% to 27% usage last year. And his change-up is one of the best pitches in baseball. 20% swinging strike and a 64% ground ball rate. Um, on the American, American League side, Frankie Montes is one who stuck out. His split finger is an elite pitch. He only threw it 13% of the time in 2020. Bumped that up to 22% of the time last year. And then lastly, another labor target of mine. So practicing what I'm preaching here with uh, with kind of putting my money where my mouth is, is Patrick Sandoval, who has a devastating changeup and bumped that usage up from 20% to 30%. Um, actually, his most used pitch of uh, of any other pitch in 2021 so um, my theory is those pitch mix changes since they worked these guys are going to stick with that heading into 2022 and be just as uh, as successful i agree and, and what i think i like about the pitch mix change metrics that we see is a lot of when we're looking at pitchers suffers from having small sample sizes, which inherently makes them a little less trustworthy. But here we're talking about literally hundreds of pitches. Uh, uh, The average, I think, what does a guy throw, 3,000 pitches in a year, something like that? Uh, 30 starts at 100 pitches a piece, if you're talking about a starting pitcher. So even if he's only throwing it, you know, 15% of the time, that's still 450 pitches, which is a pretty good sample to to get a bead on. And for that reason, I really have, ever since I found out about it, uh, and your story reminded me of it. I always look at the start of the year for guys who changed their mix pretty pretty substantially in the previous year and and basically found a pitch that was really good and threw it more often rather than just saying, I'm a pitcher, therefore four-seam fastball half the time. And somebody comes along and says, your four-seam fastball sucks. Throw the change up because it gets guys out. And they go, well, yeah, okay, I'll try it. Hey, look at me. I'm a 250 ERA pitcher where I used to be a 450 ERA pitcher. So I I think that we're really on to something. And your column was perfectly timed for, for the purpose of understanding who's doing that. And you can even look into more guys who are in that position. You also wrote a couple of columns about avoiding those risky guys at the top of the table. Uh, You called them blow-ups for hitters and landmines for pitchers. We did talk about that a bit already, but I wanted to talk about uh, a couple of uh, players in particular. In the second round, Mike Trout and Whit Merrifield demonstrated, I think what you were looking at there was speed risk. Can you explain how that worked? And they're not quite the same kinds of speed risk. Yeah. So, yep. Yep. Uh, Mike Trout. Well, speed and health risk for for Trout. Really, health was the big thing. He hasn't played more than 140 games in a season since 2016 and has only 
attempted four steals in the last two seasons combined. Uh, and, you know, he's missed time. So those last two seasons is like 380 plate appearances. Not a huge sample, but only four attempted steals the last two seasons. Like, um, it's it's weird to think Trout of as a non-first rounder, but you look at the health history, you look at the lack of a running game, and again, I'm kind of speculating here, but if that health history lingers into 2022, that's a really is a a landmine, and I don't. It's very tricky to assume that the speed is going to come back. Uh, Whit Merrifield is another one who I who I. The interesting thing with him, there's really no, there's not much of a reason to see a, a speed drop off. Just the one kind of thing that we noticed in the in the baseball forecaster is that he only uh, he only stole two bases in September, and again, like that's not something that you know, very sam- very small sample size. But this is the speculator. I'm kind of kind of trying to look at those little edges and say, okay, what if that September carries into 2022? With Whit Merrifield, who is not a young guy anymore, this is his age 33 season. Um, he does give you a good batting average, but his early round fantasy value is is pretty much tied to his legs. And if that September uh, red light and not lack of success on the base pass carries over into 2022, um, he's going to return nowhere near where his uh, where his draft cost is right now. So just an interesting little nugget that I don't think a lot of people have picked up on with Whit Merrifield September last year. Um, not to say it's predictive of, of this season, but just something to think about uh, when you're, again, considering that wide range of outcomes for a player. When I looked at it, my first thought was maybe he was hurt. And which would be bad. And then my second thought was maybe he just got tired of running around out there in a season where Kansas City was going nowhere. And somebody said to him, "Look, just stop. <laughs> you know, it's not doing anybody any good. Take take somewhere and tear off. And maybe he'll come out like gangbusters this year. But it definitely does create a thought in your mind that maybe what we're used to from Whit Merrifield isn't what we're going to get. In the fourth round, you looked at a couple of other guys that had risk for different reasons, and I'm sure we can guess why. Uh, one of them was Wander Franco and the other one Byron Buxton. And uh, I'm going to put my analyst hat on here and say we're talking about experience and health. Yeah, good good, good guesses. Thank you, um, thank you. That's why they pay me as much as they do to do this. That's right. That's why we have millions of listeners here right. on, 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 minute, on Minute 50 of HQ Radio. Um, yeah, so no, those were two guys, like Byron Buxton. I, I mean, I don't, I don't need to spend much time going into the, the health history there. Wander Franco, to me, is the more interesting one, just because, yeah, our number one overall prospect in the HQ 100 as a as a as a minor leaguer held his own in a great uh kind of real life debut with tampa last year the thing that i see with franco is seven home runs and two steals in in 280 at bats like yes you can make the argument that yeah he was a 20 year old and this was his first time going against major league pitching and he was fine he's going to improve and that probably is the case the thing is with franco you're drafting him in the uh, in the top 60 a guy who you know has has a good average, probably gonna he's gonna play every day, probably score some runs in Tampa, but I don't know how much home run and stolen base upside you're actually getting there. If it's anything like what we saw last season, uh, Franco's 
really not going to have those numbers at all. So um, it was just a, you know, a landmine in terms of, no, I don't think he's going to fall flat on his, on his face. And certainly not like a Buxton where, you know, could get hurt and be out for five months. Uh, the floor is I think pretty good with Franco, but you're kind of banking in the early rounds that he's going to start stealing bases with Tampa. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case. You're also banking on the fact that his power is just going to get a lot better in year two. Maybe it does, but we just have not seen that from Franco in the major league level with seven home runs and 280 at bat. So um, just kind of me, you know, pulling in the reins a little bit on somebody who is uber talented, could be wrong, could be the next Ronald Acuna and he's a first round pick next year, but, um, but definitely saw some red flags fantasy wise uh, with Franco this year. And Buxton, as you said, we know that story. If he stays healthy for 155 games, he's going to be a first rounder. I just think that he's got all the skills and tools in the world. It's just that we've never seen it so far, and I, and it's a fairly late in the day to start thinking. Well, maybe this is the year because we say that every year, and it never is. Uh, finally, 2022 possible pitching landmines you said are littered throughout the early rounds. All the more reason to go into those middle rounds, as you said earlier. Uh, let's get some short snappers. We're past the hour mark here, so maybe a sentence or two each on, uh, start with Shane Bieber. Yeah, Shane Bieber for me was just, you know, the shoulder injury. Shoulders freak me out for starting pitchers. We did see Bieber come back at least uh, at the very end of the season and throw like six innings, but his velocity was way down. And, and maybe he was just ramping back up. I don't know. His velocity was 91 miles an hour. And for his career, it's been over 92. So, um, you know, might be fine. But taking a starting pitcher with a shoulder injury, and the last time we saw him had a, a lower velocity as a top 30 pick, I think that's that's a lot of risk. And Shane Bieber was pretty much off my board in labor um, in the second round. It was not a consideration. Uh, yeah, just another guy. I, I called him Eric Bedard, uh, but but I, I called him Robbie Ray. Uh, lefty coming to Seattle, coming off a career year. Just a just more of a, you know, unlike Bieber, where it's an injury kind of risk, uh, this is a regression risk for Robbie Ray. Like, was fantastic last year, but um, has only had one XERA under 375 in the last four seasons, had the league's worst walk rate in 2020. So, um, you know, it's just a re- regression is a thing, and Robbie Ray is uh, – you're buying him at his peak value right now. Does he not get some credit offsetting the, the sort of unusually good season that he had? Uh, because he seems to be moving to a much better environment for left-handed pitchers in Seattle than he had in Toronto and Dunedin and Buffalo and uh, uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Little League Park, wherever they played last year, uh, the Blue Jays. Does Robbie Ray not get some offsetting credit for the uh, park change? He should. And I mean, and again, like I'm looking at percentile outcomes here and the, the projection of Robbie Ray is going to note, um, you know, the, the better, uh, the better con the better team context, the better division, um, the, the jump in swinging strike rate, the improved control. What I'm doing with the speculator is, is again, just opening, opening that, uh, that potential for the 2020 version to come back. So for as much as, uh, as Robbie Ray owns the 2021 skills, he also has some 2020 skills as well. And even though that was a, a shorter season, it was 52 innings. Um, that's part of his, you know, once this, once you display a skill, you own it can kind of work both, both ways with some of these guys. So I'm just, uh, just pointing out that we might see a 2020 version uh, this season. 
Something else that I think about whenever a pitcher, especially a pitcher, but even a hitter, changes teams is we don't know how much benefit Robbie Ray was getting from whoever was coaching him in Toronto, and now he'll have a new pitching coach, and we don't know how the personalities will mesh. We don't know if they'll argue over tactics, uh, this kind of stuff. So I think that that's a source of risk as well. And uh, going back to Ron Chandler's BAB system, there's a, a, a... deficit on the on the negative side of the ledger of Babs for a guy who changes parks and it's partly because of coaching it's partly because of moving your family and new schools and all that kind of hassle and changing the park and all of that kind of stuff so it's worth thinking about when you're looking at Robbie Ray as a guy and uh, another guy I'd like to close with you mentioned earlier that Logan Webb was on your list of guys who had successful pitch mix changes he's also on your list of risky guys in in this part of your speculator column uh should we believe you on A or should we believe you on B? That's right. Uh, a little bit two-faced here, but, but, and I, and I did preface it in the column, right? I said it, you know, it seems weird to list Logan Webb here. And two weeks ago, I bought into his pitch mix change. Um, the goal, and I did this and actually, so last season I did this with Corbin Burns. He, Corbin Burns was a speculator, um, highlight both for the positive and the negative. I'm just trying to kind of, say range of outcomes if logan webb holds that pitch mix change that he we saw last year he could be great the flip side to logan webb is that he missed nearly two months with a shoulder injury in in 2021 and again going back to Bieber's shoulders can freak me out and the other thing with logan webb is we just have not seen this at level of skill at any other point in his career in the minors and that sort of thing so um, a little bit of just kind of playing both sides of it and, and hopefully having the reader decide what's, what's best for them um, and saying that Logan Webb, if things break correctly and it's an 80, 80th percentile outcome, we get that, that 2021 version. If things don't break right and we get that 20th percentile outcome of Logan Webb, he ends up the season out with an IL injury uh, with the shoulder. So um, wide range of outcomes for Logan Webb this season. And just out of curiosity, what do you think of Jose Barrios this year? Seems to me like one of the most stable pitchers in the game. I know we I traded for him last year at, with you uh, in, right. in AL Tau. And um, you got to look at, you know, 352 ERA. You love the innings. So 192 innings in 2018, 200 innings in 2019, 192 again last season in the team, right, with Toronto. Plenty of run support. So, um, no surprise that Barrios gets a triple A, uh, reliability grades from HQ. So I, he's one, he is one where like, I'm not going to talk about him in the speculator because he is such a kind of has been a consistent performer. There's not much reason in this, in the, in the actual data to say, you know, to really say he's going to be any different than he's been the last few years. So, um, so yeah, he's, he's not a speculator guy. You kind of know what you're getting with him. And uh, I like that in the middle rounds this year. Well, you're not going to get him in Razzlam because while we were talking, I, I grabbed him up in the eighth round. Oh, so, that's why, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll raise that to you at the AL Tout table in, in March. We'll see who gets. Uh, we'll see who gets Barrios. Well, this has been terrific, Ryan. I thought it would be uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Always a blast, PD. Glad to have uh, HQ Radio back in the. Back on the airwaves. Find me at Baseball HQ every Wednesday with my speculator column and on Twitter with uh, at RyanBHQ, where I'll be uh, continuing to pump out those bloom boards until, uh, until the season begins. 
And I noticed you appear on uh, a lot of podcasts, uh, or have been so far this year in the preseason, so you're getting around out there, spreading the word, and that's good too. Uh, Ryan, thanks for joining this podcast this time, spreading the word with us, and uh, certainly hope that we'll talk to you again during the season. Absolutely, man. Talk soon. Ryan Bloomfield is the speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com, where he has a new column every Wednesday. Before we go, I'd like to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Rotisserie Gaming, analyst Michael Waddell lays out this season's anchor starters for the long-standing Santana plan for roster construction. That's a two-part series. In Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Brian Rudd looks at Mookie Betts, Nolan Arenado, and three other National Leaguers. And in Alternative Games, analyst Greg Fishwick looks at strategies for best ball formats. They're really growing in popularity. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. That player performance validation and facts and flukes that I mentioned, there are buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cederholm's terrific column, The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day and all kinds of other metrics and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. Add in some expert content, and that's why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 25th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number two of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. And of course, I also want to thank our HQ Spotlight guest for this Baseball HQ Tout Edition, Ryan Bloomfield, the speculator columnist. He's an excellent fantasy baseball analyst and a great guy, always a ton of fun to talk with. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I try to be fun to talk with. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you get your pods. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That helps us find new listeners, and it's new listeners that keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with our first Tuesday Tout Edition of the season, featuring someone who doesn't even know he's on the show yet. But someone will be here on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk to you Tuesday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.